It was the 19th of July, 1588, and on his ship, the Golden Hind, Thomas Fleming peered out into the swirling mists off the Lizard Peninsula in Cornwall. And here, off the very southernmost tip of England, he waited. And suddenly, as the mists parted, he saw them, with crosses on their mainsails, ships as far as the eye could see, bearing down on England. He'd seen all he needed to, and Fleming quickly steered a course for the nearest port, Plymouth, to raise the alarm that the Spanish Armada had arrived to take Queen Elizabeth's throne. Elizabeth I was the daughter of King Henry VIII and his second wife, Anne Boleyn, and she succeeded to the throne of England upon the death of her half-sister, Queen Mary I, in 1558. But it was touch and go as to whether she would ever ascend the throne of England. When her father had executed her mother in the 1530s, Elizabeth had been declared illegitimate by her own father. Her half-sister, Mary, had never forgiven Elizabeth's mother for, the, for destroying her own mother's marriage to Henry VIII. Moreover, not only was she the daughter of what many Catholics called the Great Whore, she was also a Protestant heretic. And that, for Mary and for many of her Catholic subjects, was and would continue to be a huge cause for concern. The ideal solution for Mary was to give birth to a child who could inherit the throne from her. But that, however, did not happen. And so Mary and her husband, Philip of Spain, looked at the options available. Mary and Elizabeth were Henry VIII's sole surviving children. And meanwhile, the granddaughters of Henry's younger sisters, whilst legitimate, were Protestant. So that really didn't solve matters for Mary and Philip. The obvious line of succession, as far as Catholics were concerned, was through Henry's older sister, Margaret. As you may recall from previous episodes, Margaret had married the King of Scotland, and now her Catholic granddaughter sat on the throne of Scotland, the 15-year-old Mary, Queen of Scots. Mary Stuart, Mary Queen of Scots, was the obvious Catholic and legitimate heir to the Tudor crown, with one small problem. In April 1558, six months before Mary Tudor was to pass away, her Scottish namesake married the Dauphin of France. A Catholic match. So, so far, so good. Unfortunately, even in Catholic Christendom, there were rivalries, none more so than the one between Spain and France in the middle of the 16th century. Philip of Spain was horrified that if, England, if the English crown passed to Mary Stuart, England would line up with France and Scotland in a war against Spain. So in a classic case of real politic, Philip urged his wife to pass the crown to her half-sister, better a Protestant England than a Catholic one allied to France. As Queen Mary I drew her last breath on the 17th of November 1558, messengers galloped out of St James's Palace. Their destination? Hatfield House, a stately home about 20 miles north of London in Hertfordshire. And there, on bended knees, they gave the news to the Lady Elizabeth and proclaimed the 25-year-old Queen of England. England rejoiced in their new Queen and she was crowned on the 15th of January 1559. As Elizabeth left the Tower of London en route to her coronation in Westminster Abbey, she must have remembered the last time that she was in the tower, when Mary had imprisoned her there nearly five years before after a Protestant rising, uh, Wyatt's Rebellion. Uh, 
many of Mary's supporters, including Philip of Spain, had actually wanted her to execute Elizabeth, but there was a lack of evidence as to her involvement in that plot. And now, after years of house arrest and quite frankly walking on very delicate eggshells, here she was, Queen of England. And her subjects, well apart from the Catholic ones, adored her and cheered her loudly through the streets of London. Mary had hardly been buried in Westminster Abbey herself when her widowed husband, Philip, made a marriage proposal to Elizabeth. He wanted to cement, he was willing to marry a Protestant English queen to cement an alliance against Catholic France. Politics, eh? Elizabeth's rejection of his hand was the first in a long line of royal suitors from Europe who failed to woo the Queen of England. It was also the first sign to Philip that England was going to travel a separate path from Spain. But that was 30 years ago. And now those separate paths were on a collision course. As the Protestant monarch of the strongest Protestant state in Europe, it was natural that England would be seen as a beacon for all of those struggling to free themselves from, as they saw it, Catholic tyranny. And that Catholic tyranny was represented above all by the Catholic superpower of the day, Spain, under Elizabeth's former brother-in-law, Philip. In the 1560s, a Protestant rebellion broke out in the Netherlands, which at the time was ruled by Spain. A large Spanish army was sent to crush the rebellion and the Protestants looked across the North Sea to England for help. In 1585, the Queen signed the Treaty of Nonsuch, uh, which is actually the name of a former palace in South London that Henry VIII had built, Nonsuch Palace, uh, promising to supply the Protestants of Netherlands with arms and horses and money. Philip saw this as tantamount to a declaration of war by England. Against her better judgment, Elizabeth was persuaded by her favourite, Robert Dudley, the Earl of Leicester, to send an army to the Netherlands. Commanded by Dudley himself, it actually then engaged the Spanish army, and it came off second best. Meanwhile, Elizabeth was facing increasing Catholic plots to her throne. Nearly all of them planned to replace Elizabeth with the Catholic Mary Queen of Scots, who was now under house arrest in England. See my previous episodes for that story. Suffice to say that the Spanish were more than aware of these plots, um, which in turn made Elizabeth see them as dangerous and aggressive enemy. So we had this case where Philip saw Elizabeth interfering in a rebellion in the Spanish Netherlands, including sending Dudley and his army to fight his own troops. And so intriguing to remove Elizabeth was, you know, was fair game. Meanwhile, Elizabeth saw it in the opposite light. Spain was supporting Catholic rebels or potential rebels in her own country to oust her. And so supporting the Dutch Protestants was a bit of a tit for tat. Eventually, when Mary, Queen of Scots, corresponded in writing with the Babington plotters, encouraging them to overthrow Elizabeth and install her as their rightful queen, Elizabeth acted decisively. Mary, Queen of Scots, was executed in 1587 and it shock sent shockwaves through Catholic Europe. But it was at sea that this rivalry really came to a head. For the past 100 years, the, the Portuguese and then the Spanish had started to explore the world's oceans from Europe, opening up new trade routes and establishing overseas empires. The Portuguese had sort of dominated the routes down the west coast of Africa, around the Cape of Good Hope and onwards to the East Indies. The Spanish had sailed west 
and had established a massive empire at the expense of, of the Aztecs, the Incas and, and other indigenous peoples through Central and South America. The conquered lands of the Americas were awash with gold. Now, England had a history of privateers going back to well, Elizabeth's grandfather and even before that as well. Privateers were essentially state-sponsored pirates. They were given a charter by the monarch and allowed to raid ships of specific, uh, principally hostile, nations. And if they were killed or captured, well, that was their problem. They were not officially working for the state. By the way, the English uh, were not the only ones who played this privateer game. Other European nations did so as well, notably the French, uh, who, uh, strange enough, they, their privateers quite happily attacked English ships. The booty captured from the ships was split between the privateers and the monarch. So the privateers got rich, the monarch got rich, and hostile nations lost valuable treasure. And the Spanish ships travelling from the American Empire were laden with treasure. What a great way to get rich for Elizabeth and also uh, inflict commercial damage on the country that was trying to support Catholic plots in England. From the 1570s, English privateers such as John Hawkins, Francis Drake, Martin Frobisher led attacks not just on Spanish ships, but also on Spanish ports in the Americas. They were, they were that well organised and that daring. Philip was enraged especially as the English were not technically attacking him as a nation. It was just the English privateers. Often the privateers would actually carry out trading and exploration agendas alongside their privateering. Uh, Frobisher, for instance, found fame searching for the fabled Northwest Passage around Northern Canada, which he failed to do. John Hawkins was the first Englishman to transport slaves across the Atlantic. Not necessarily something you want to be proud of, but a fact. And Drake had, whilst becoming the first Englishman to circumnavigate the globe, also been happily raiding Spanish treasure, ship, uh, treasure ships on that voyage. So Philip was faced with a Protestant England and its queen who were increasingly flexing their muscles. Privateers raiding his treasure ships, actively supporting a Dutch rebellion, repressing Catholics in England and executing the main Catholic replacement for Elizabeth, Mary Queen of Scots. Philip finally snapped. If the English Catholics were unable to rise up and dismiss the heretic Elizabeth, he would do it himself. And he began to assemble a huge fleet, an armada, to transport a massive army to England, to invade England and overthrow Elizabeth and her Protestant regime. But even as he prepared that fleet, the English privateers struck once more. In 1587, just two months after the shock of Mary Queen of Scots' execution, Francis Drake raided the main Spanish naval port at Cadiz in southern Spain. His attack destroyed 20 ships destined for that invasion of England. And over the next three months, Drake worked his way up the west coast of Iberia, attacking ports such as La Coruña and capturing treasure ships, treasure ships that were needed to bankroll the invasion. These attacks on his very home ports, which became known as the singeing of the King of Spain's beard because they were that close to home, were both an embarrassment and an affront to Philip. There was no way back from war now. That singeing of the King of Spain's beard had, however, bought England time. And it wasn't until July in the following year, 1588, that Philip's invasion fleet could finally set sail. On the 12th of July, 1588, La Palamisia Armada, the most fortunate fleet, 
set sail from Lisbon. 150 ships carrying 8,000 sailors, 18,000 soldiers sailed north into the Bay of Biscay. Their aim was to rendezvous with the Spanish commander in the Netherlands, the Duke of Parma, and escort his army of 30,000 across the English Channel to land in England. Philip's plan was to defeat the English in battle, overthrow Elizabeth, and, well, he didn't quite know what he'd do after that, but maybe take the throne himself. And after that, England would be returned to the Roman Catholic Church, peacefully if all went well, by force of the Spanish Inquisition, if necessary. I don't have time to, to go into the huge detail about the Spanish Armada right here, right now. So just to keep our story on track, here is a potted history of events. Seven days after the Armada had left Lisbon, it was spotted off the Lizard Peninsula in Cornwall by Thomas Fleming. And beacons were lit, spreading the message rapidly to London that the mighty Spanish Armada was close at hand. Sir Francis Drake, in the epitome of uh, calm Englishness, supposedly finished playing a game of bowls uh, in Plymouth. Now, <laughs> that story seems to have been told sometime after the event, suggesting that, uh, well, it probably might not have happened in quite the way it's told now, if at all. Uh, the reality actually was that the incoming tide meant the English fleet in Plymouth couldn't have put to sea anyway, so quite frankly, he had nothing else to do except, well, I don't know, play bowls. The Spanish captains were, were really keen to use that very tide to sail into Plymouth and attack the English ships at anchor, a, a suitable reprisal for Drake's attack on Cadiz the year before. But King Philip had given strict instructions. The Armada was to head up the English Channel and escort Palmer's invasion over to England. No ifs, no buts, no attacking English ports on the way. And when the tide turned, the English fleet now left port to engage them. Commanded by Lord Howard of Effingham on the Ark Royal, second in command was Drake on the Revenge, and the Rear Admiral, third in command, was Sir John Hawkins on the Victory. Isn't it interesting to see how some of those names of some of the greatest English and British battleships passed down through the ages? You know, the Ark Royal, the Victory, uh, the Dreadnought, which was commanded by George Beeston. Frobisher, a privateer Frobisher, explorer of the Northwest Passage and of Baffin Island in Canada, was also there commanding the Triumph. As the Spanish sailed up the Channel, they maintained a strict a crescent formation. But the English ships, which were faster and had uh, more guns and a longer range, kept harrying them. When the massive Spanish fleet moored off Calais, uh, the English attacked them with fire ships, uh, eight ships filled with combustible materials, which basically were sent into, the, into, the, into the, the Spanish fleet, and obviously consisting of wooden ships could set them all ablaze. Rather like the harrying up the channel, the, the fire ships actually had little material impact on the giant fleet. But what they did do was force the panic-struck Spanish captains to break their formation. They all weighed anchor, cut their anchor chains uh, to get out of the way of the fire ships, and they broke the formation. The following day, the English attacked, and once more, the already fragmented Spanish fleet started to break apart. And then the wind began to blow the Spanish fleet northwards, away from Palmer's army into the North Sea. And with the English fleet bearing down on them, the Spanish commander gave the order to sail for home around the north coast of Scotland. It took the mighty Armada three months to return to Lisbon, and of the 150 ships that had set out in July, only 65 made it home. The rest were mainly sunk or wrecked trying to get round Scotland and Ireland. 
The defeat of the Spanish Armada was a defining moment in Elizabeth's reign and also in England's growing self-confidence. Uh, self As the Armada approached the, through up the English Channel, Queen Elizabeth had addressed her troops at Tilbury who were awaiting the expected invasion. Resplendent on a white horse, she spoke these defiant words to her men. I know I have the body of a weak and feeble woman, but I have the heart and stomach of a king, and a king of England too, and think foul scorn that Parma or Spain or any prince of Europe should dare to invade the borders of my realm. It was those words and that defiance showed by, shown by that red-haired Tudor queen that have often been drawn upon in, by future generations when England has been threatened. But there was something deeper too. Philip's armada had been nothing short of a Catholic crusade. It was accompanied, there were 180 priests on the, in the armada. Many of the sails of the ships were adorned with crosses. And there was an implicit aim to conquer England and replace its Protestant queen and revert England back to the Roman Catholic Church. And his armada had failed. The English fleet had held them at bay, but it was the wind that had really broken up their formation and sent them on that disastrous voyage around the British Isles. So, if Philip's armada was a Catholic crusade, then surely the wind that fragmented them was also a sign from God. And commemorative medals struck to mark the victory by the English bore this inscription. He blew with his winds, and they were scattered. God had blown a Protestant wind. Not just to protect Protestants, but more specifically, Protestant England. The Armada helped instill not just a defiance in the English, but a growing sense of confidence and that somehow that they were on God's winning side, for better or worse in future generations. In his poem, The Fairy Queen, uh, Edmund Spencer called Elizabeth Gloriana. Gloriana, the defiant queen with the heart of a king of England. This was the high point of the Elizabethan age. The English under Sir Walter Raleigh established fledgling colonies in North America, the colony named after the Virgin Queen herself, Virginia. Along the south bank of the River Thames, theatres such as the Globe burst into life, bringing plays from, amongst others, Christopher Marlowe and William Shakespeare to the fore. Of the 38 plays attributed to Shakespeare, 25 were written between the defeat of the Armada and Elizabeth's death, including his most popular one, Romeo and Juliet. New trading companies, the East India Company, the Levant Company, brought exotic goods from India, North Africa, the Ottoman Empire to England. England was now firmly on the world stage, all presided over by good Queen Bess the resplendent monarch. And yet, beneath all that glory, cracks were developing. Despite the victory over the Armada, the English were never able to turn it to a decisive advantage at sea. A counter-strike against Spain the following year was defeated, and attacks by Grenville on the Azores, uh, the islands of the Azores, and uh, Drake on Puerto Rico in the Caribbean were ineffective. In 1596, an attempt at a second singeing of the King of Spain's beard, uh, where, uh, when an attack on Cadiz by the commander against the Armada, Lord Howard of Effingham, along with two new court favourites, Sir Walter Raleigh and the Earl of Essex, was a complete failure. 
Raleigh's two attempts at colonies in Virginia were less than successful, especially when you compared them to the thriving Spanish colonies in Central and South America. And Gloriana was cosmetic. The makeup and the wigs that gave such grandeur were actually covering up the fact that good Queen Bess was now in her 60s. The white uh, ceruse uh, makeup uh, that she wore on her face and on her hands was laced with lead that rather than staving off old age actually had a corrosive effect on her skin. Her teeth by now were black and starting to fall out. Around her, the men who had, she had relied on for so much of her reign, Robert Dudley, Sir Francis Walsingham, William Cecil, had all passed away, allowing new ambitious youngsters to rise in the court. Youngsters like Sir Walter Raleigh and the Earl of Essex, who were headstrong when that older generation had been more pragmatic. Meanwhile, the economy was stagnating under a burden of high taxes and a series of bad harvests. In the countryside, the, the enclosure of common land uh, and the creation of yeoman farmers suddenly created a growing army of have-nots in the rural economy, resulting in a migration to the cities and also a growing crime wave with, with cut purses operating in the towns like pickpockets and footpads ambush ambushing travellers on country roads. The treasury was being bled dry by a rebellion that had broken out in Ireland in 1593, led by Hugh O'Neill. This uh, nine years war in Ireland was not, not just costing the exchequer, it wasn't going well either. In 1598, the English suffered one of their worst defeats ever in Ireland, losing 1,500 men at the Battle of Yellow Ford. And the following year, the young Earl of Essex personally commanded the English uh, forces in Ireland and was defeated at Curlow Pass. Recalled in disgrace, the Earl of Essex attempted a coup against Queen Elizabeth in 1601. It was put down and Elizabeth ordered her former favourite to be executed. Two years later, the old queen lay dying at Richmond Palace. And the question that had plagued her reign still hadn't been answered. Who would be her successor? The carefully cultivated aura of the Virgin Queen had kept Europe's suitors on tenderhooks. Everyone was in with a chance of marrying the Queen of England. So who would make enemies against her? It was a good diplomatic move. Even Philip of Spain had tried his luck a long time ago. But now it had run its course. She had no husband and no children. And as she lay dying, unable to speak, her ministers asked her once more, who was to wear the crown of England? And as they listed the candidates who possibly could be king or queen, they received no response. And finally, when they mentioned the king of Scotland, she made a, a circle in the air, the sign of a crown. After everything that had happened over so many tumultuous years, the crown of England would be worn by King James VI of Scotland, the son of Mary, Queen of Scots. On the 24th of March, 1603, Queen Elizabeth I finally passed away. England's golden age had passed, and with it, so had the Tudors. They had lasted just three generations, but what an incredible impact they made on England. And now England was to embark on a new journey with a new royal dynasty, the Stuarts.